Uh, well, good morning. It's great to see everyone. If I haven't met you, my name's Brent. I'm lead pastor here. And uh, turn your attention to the screen this morning. Anybody seen one of these before? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really? yeah. Magic, eye. Magic eye. There's also another name for them. Uh, who remembers these? Who, who says I've seen something like this before? How many of you say I've never seen anything like this before in my life? Okay, I think it's kind of a generational thing, to be, well, be honest. How many of you had at least three of them hanging in your house? Oh, three of them hanging in. Well, I had them hanging in my grandmother's house. My grandmother had them, yes. So they were. They used to be at the mall. That's right. There was like, you know, the little pop-up stores that you have. This was one of the pop-up stores, the Magic Eye, or they're actually called uh, auto stereograms as well. And now here's the thing. I know on the screen, it may be a little challenging for you, but it's designed to create a, a visual illusion of a three-dimensional scene from a two-dimensional image in the human brain. So it's some type of an optical illusion. And so here's what you're supposed to do. Uh, you're supposed to stare at it. And eventually, if you stare long enough and you refocus your eyes, an image will kind of pop out from the screen. Now, it's got the same pattern and texture as what you see there, but there is a 3D image there. Um, okay, now here's the question. Can you see it? There's something pointy on the I have an example of it in just a second, so... No one sees it. It's harder on the screens. And so here's what we'll do this week. Liz, make a note. We're going to post this to our Facebook page so you can struggle and, and feel frustrated all week long, just like Liz did when I showed her that this week. I'm still not convinced Liz thinks it's real. I think she thinks I'm making stuff up. <laughs> She's like, you're old. Your eyes don't work. You just see certain things. So um, I did. I will say I agree. I, we never had one in my house, but my grandmother did have one. Um, some, it's interesting because when you see it, you then can see most of them. Like there's a whole book, there's all these images. And once you see one, it becomes easier because you train your eyes on how you see it. So this one here, go to that next slide. This is what you're actually looking for right there. What? Yeah. So there are three crosses and then at the bottom, there's an empty tomb. Anybody see? Okay, go back to the first one. <laughs> So, so here's the trick. Here's the trick. And I kept telling Liz this this week. And again, I think she's like, Brent, you're crazy. And yeah, you really, there, there's a couple of ways you can do this. Like I saw online, there's one image where they had two red dots at the top and they're like, focus on the red dots and kind of look through the red dots. And then you kind of see this image come out at you. Sometimes people can put it close to their nose and like, don't, don't let your eyes change focus. And then you can see it that way. Um, for me, I just kind of know what it feels like when my eyes kind of do this <laughs> and I can see it. And so, um, yeah. So how many of you, you may not see this one, but you've seen them before. You can like, you are trained enough to be able to see, see, that's a good number. So there we go. Um, like I said, we'll put it out on our website this week so you can actually see the three crosses and all this. And I'll link to some other things that you guys can take a look at to see. Um, according, according to those who make these things, which I'm very fascinated by who thought this was, you know, who came up with this, because it is fascinating how it works. Um, the best way to see the image is called the diverging method. You requires you to focus your eyes beyond the image, if that makes any sense. So if you had a piece of paper, you bring your focus to here, and then you kind of bring the paper up, and then that way it helps you see it. So when you focus your eyes beyond the two-dimensional picture, 
the actual picture, the 3D image actually comes into focus. And really, why is that important? Because go back to the other screen real quick, the first one. This is really not the image, is it? This is not what the artist intended for you to see. This is what's supposed to get you there. And so what's the problem is, is that you look at this and you see the pattern and maybe rocks or the blues and the purples or whatever on the screen. But if you don't ever refocus your eyes, it's possible to completely miss the image in the image, isn't it? To absolutely never see what's right in front of you. And as we're talking about the big picture and we're looking at Jesus and, and, and God's story that he's been uh, unfolding before us, we come today to the part where we look at Jesus. And then what we're going to understand is that the way we've been studying the big picture, we're going to get to see this incredible image of Jesus. It's hopefully, as we've been talking each week, that image is just coming into focus more and more. But it doesn't negate the fact that so many see the pattern and miss Jesus in the process. So let's turn our attention to the big picture and see Jesus. Let's pick up where we left off last week, though, because we were talking about prophets in exile last week, another uplifting, rousing message that made you feel really good. But where we left, left the people, the people rejected God. They'd chosen and chased after these false gods. The prophets were declaring judgment if they didn't turn back, which they didn't, and they just continued in their wickedness and their evil. And so what happened? The kingdom that was split, yet Israel and Judah and the northern kingdom, Assyria came in, conquered them, destroyed everything, scattered the people. And then later, Babylon comes into the southern kingdom of Judah and, and takes them into exile. But we did see this place last week where after 70 years of exile, the people are actually allowed to return to Judah. And they're, they're able to rebuild the temple. And you would think, oh man, this is great. This is awesome and amazing. They get to rebuild the temple. But what they find out is, as you read through some of these like chronicles and, and some of the prophets, it wasn't the same. Like some of the things that they had heard, the stories about the presence of God descending on the temple. They get this temple built, and they're dedicate, rededicating the temple, and they're expecting, you know, this big, awesome moment, and it's not there. And there's this call for the people to come back to God and to return to, to his commands and his ways, and the people don't. And they continue just kind of, even after exile, they kind of continue doing what they wanted to do. And so... It was through the prophets that we began to see this new message. This message was coming forth that said, you know what? God sees who you are. God knows you. And you know what? God's not done with you. God's not going to throw you away. God's not going to you know, just completely discard you. But he's going to do a new thing through you, a new thing. And he began, the prophets began to talk about a, a new king, a promised Messiah who would come and rescue the people once for all. This would be someone to do for them what they were unable to do for themselves. And so remember why this is so important. What was the point of this whole story from the very beginning? A creator God who created everything and created humanity in his image to live in relationship with us. And that was destroyed. That was broken. And so God's desire, God's intent to restore that relationship is, has not stopped, has not waned at all. God is still on that primary mission of being known and knowing his creation. And that's why 
even though we as humanity continued to reject him, God was still going to pursue this. And it wasn't just for us to know him, but remember, Israel was chosen so that they would reveal God to the rest of the world. That it wasn't just, you know, let's huddle up here and let's keep God all to ourselves. That the whole purpose, everything from the beginning was so that the world might know the one true God. And yet time and time again, people failed. So God says, I'm going to do a new thing. And uh, he begins to do that. And we've talked about the covenant that God made with Abraham. We've talked about Moses and the law. But then we get to the end of the Old Testament. What's interesting is in our Bibles, does anybody know the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi. Malachi, very good. You know, in the Hebrew text, it's not Malachi. See, Bible quiz scholar right there. She knows. She's got it. <laughs> um, do you know what it is in the Hebrew Bible, though, or the Hebrew text, what the last book in theirs is? Chronicles. Did somebody say that? It's actually Chronicles. It's kind of an interesting thing because if you read First and Second Chronicles, what you'll find is this, it's this retelling of the story of the nation of Israel. But it was written post-exile, and they kind of cover over some of the negative things a lot more. They, they focus a lot more on the positive. But then it kind of ends in this way that kind of points people forward, that kind of points and kind of leaves the story unfinished. And so then we get to the end of the Old Testament, whether it's Malachi or Chronicles, and then you have this period where there's just nothing for a while. And that's some, it's called the intertestamental period, or it's called the, uh, the, temple, the second temple period. But really, you have about 400 years where we don't have anything written down that we put in our Bibles. But there are some things that are there that some writings that were done that some Orthodox Christian Jews and even Jewish people believe they are special writings. They have value, but they're just not in our canon of Scripture that we think was uh, inspired by God in the same way. But when we get to this period of, uh, of between the, the Testaments, the Old and New Testament, you kind of wonder what's going on. Well, what's going on is what had been going on. The, uh, the, the Babylonians, they get defeated by the Persians. The Persians get defeated by the Greeks. The Greeks get defeated by the Romans. And you've got all this world power stuff playing out. But really, what's happening here is when you get to the end of the Old Testament, well, let me just read a quote from the Bible Project, because they do a great job of kind of talking about the condition of the people. Look at this. It says, Bible Project on their blog, it says, Exile did not purify the hearts of the people, as the prophets had promised, they needed a rescuing from a problem deeper than outward exile. The chronicler lives among this still-in-exile community, and he composed this book to help God's people understand their true situation. Through these ancient texts, he was able to paint a picture of the future hope for which they were waiting and had not yet seen. And so now what we find is there's these, it's, we're in this period of waiting. This period of waiting. And so there were seven books written during this period. I mentioned, you know, kind of referred to those earlier. We don't really accept them, but it was texts that were very significant. In fact, during this period, this intertestamental period, if you will, you'll find that that's when the, the Maccabees revolt. Anybody heard of that before? Kind of significant in Jewish history. That's when Hanukkah was kind of established in the eight days of rededicating the temple, the Festival of Lights, much more than an Adam Sandler song. Um, you know, that's during this period here. So God... Sometimes I think we look at this period and we go, God was silent. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's even accurate. 
Just because we don't have it recorded or, or in our canon of Scripture doesn't mean that God wasn't moving and God wasn't speaking and God wasn't dealing with his people. But the people are waiting. They're waiting for the promised one. They're waiting for deliverance. And uh, that, that's where we begin with the New Testament, with the Gospels and the story and the life of Jesus. Now, I will tell you, I will not be here next week. Tomorrow I get on an airplane and I'm flying to Israel where I'll spend 12 days walking through the Holy Land with, my, with a tour group that is being led by my father-in-law. And I'm excited to go and take pictures and come back and be able to share all that with you. So um, pray for my wife while I'm gone. Pray for me while I travel. So anyway... So then we, then we jump forward into the New Testament, and we have the four Gospels, and what's fascinating about Jesus is that it's not like this is just brand new information, like we didn't see this coming. In fact, if you begin to look through the big story, the big narrative, the big picture that we've been laying out for many weeks now, Jesus has been there all along the way. He's been a part of this story from the very beginning. He's not a last-minute addition. It's where God's plan was heading from the very beginning. In fact, if we go back to week one of the series and we look at Genesis chapter one again, what's Genesis 1-1 start with? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Wow. We look at that and you say, well, Jesus isn't there. Well, we look there and we see God, which is Elohim, which is a plural form, but a singular meaning in that Hebrew text present at the beginning, and then we move to John 1.1, the gospel of John, and we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Anybody see any similarities between the starting of these two passages? Absolutely. In the beginning... In the beginning. Both of these things talk about in the beginning. And this is not an accident, okay? This is not coincidental, and it's like, oh, well, isn't it nice that John just happened to line up? No. This was a very intentional thing where John, as he writes this gospel, he's taking his reader back to the very beginning. He's pointing his readers to say, you remember, you've heard this story. The Jewish readers, you've heard it your whole life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, here's what I'm telling you. In the beginning was the Word. And that Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing that you know that was made was not made without His involvement, His hand, Him being there. Jesus was a part of that. He was God, and he is God. And we need to understand the significance of, of a Jewish person making that claim. That is heresy. For the Jews, be, there is one God. You know, it, it's, it's in the Ten Commandments. Behold, there is one God in him and him alone. So for John to even make this potential claim that Jesus is God would be heresy to them. And yet, here's a man who has walked with Jesus and he begins to make this incredible claim, tying Jesus, this man, this figure that they had walked with for those years, and saying, this isn't all there is to him. He goes back to the beginning. Let's keep reading in John 1. It says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Uh-oh, he's a magic eye. He came to that which was his own, 
but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a a husband's will, but born of God. And even here, as John begins to lay out who Jesus is, there's all these glimpses back to creation. I mean, what was one of the first things that God created? God said, let there be light, and there was light. And what does John bring into this very first part of his passage? He says that Jesus isn't just the light, he is the true light. Bringing these two things together, he's th- that, that you may not see and understand, but he's right in front of you, right in front of you. You may not recognize him. And he continues to show how Jesus is such an integral part of the big picture. And then you can keep reading more in John. Just this is all John chapter one. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. He made his dwelling among us. That Greek word, skeno, which means to tabernacle. Uh Uh-oh, have we seen tabernacle somewhere before? Tabernacle. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai, he receives the Ten Commandments. He comes down. Part of the instructions that God gave him was to build a tabernacle. Now, what was the tabernacle? God's dwelling place. God's dwelling place among his people. It was this incredibly intricate tent that when they parked, they set up. And when they traveled, they collapsed it. They moved it. They set it up. And it was a part of who they were until Solomon's reign. And they came in and they built the temple, which then became the presence of God. But for many hundreds of years, this tabernacle was the presence of God among the people. And now... God is saying, I've got a new tabernacle. There's a new representation of my presence in the world. It started off being the Garden of Eden. Go back to the beginning again. What was the Garden of Eden? It was the place where man and God interacted and dwelt together, that overlapping of heaven and earth. And sin destroyed that. Then you get the tabernacle where God's presence is again represented on earth. And we move forward here to Jesus, and John says, that's now the place where heaven meets earth, like a sloppy wet kiss. So, (laughs) just as God once dwelled among his people, John is telling them God is dwelling among his people once again. Can I get an amen? Mm. That is exciting and good. And then we're not done because we break this out into the other Gospels. And you go to Matthew and Luke. And Matthew and Luke have genealogies. And I realize, let's just be honest, the most boring things you can read in the Bible are genealogies. Can I get an amen? There you go. However, it doesn't mean they're unimportant or insignificant because they're there for a reason. And in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, we see both of these Gospels trace Jesus's lineage all the way back to David. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about 2 Samuel chapter 7. What did God say there? God said, David, you can't build my temple, but I'm going to build a house for you. And through you, your kingdom will never end, that something's going to happen. And this is the hundreds of years later. And these genealogies are saying, listen, God didn't forget his promise. 
God has not stopped ever holding himself to the covenant that he made to David, that it's now going to happen here. And when God says David's kingdom would never end, and from his line there would be a king that reigns forever, the Gospels are saying, now pay attention, because what we're about to tell you, this story we're about to unfold, it's about that guy. It's about the promise of Jesus. And Matthew and Luke both, they continue to trace it back even from, uh, from David. And then they talk about to Judah, who was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac and the son of Abraham. And it keeps going on all the way back to Adam and the son of God. And it takes us back to that beginning promise that God made to Abraham. That, that, that when these people were in exile, when they've got Roman oppressors over them, when you're sitting there in that moment and you think, God has forgotten me, that all is lost, these writers, these gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, are saying, God never forgot. God never stopped. God never gave up. And he's going to continue to see this through to completion. And Matthew ends his genealogy this way. He says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And we can continue on seeing how Jesus is connecting to this big picture. You see, we can read these as just these interesting stories, or we can see that, man, God was doing something from the beginning, weaving this together in ways that should astound us, that should just absolutely amaze us. But this was definitely God's purpose. And then we can continue seeing how it wasn't just these other people around it, but Jesus himself knew who he was. Somebody asked me that last week. They said, do you think Jesus knew who he was? And I absolutely do. You know how I know? Because then I look at places like Luke chapter 4. Jesus is just beginning his ministry. He's been baptized. He's gone through the temptation in the wilderness. And one day he's in the synagogue. And, well, let's just read it. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news spread about him through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So this was a normal Sabbath day occurrence. You go to the synagogue, they're going to hand a scroll to the reader for that day. They're going to pick up where they left off. And this day, unfolding, unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Now remember, this is Jesus saying the words of Isaiah. We talked a little bit about Isaiah last week. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement, right? I mean, anybody saying that, you'd be like, yes, we can't wait till that person comes. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, which was a teaching position. See, I like to be like Jesus when I teach. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Think about this moment. Everybody's probably leaning forward going, we know who this is. We've heard him teach. He's out here. He's stirring things up. What in the world is he going to say? The eyes are fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is, that is outrageous. Yeah. That is just too much. 
Jesus is saying, you know what you've been waiting for? I'm here. Come and get it. It's amazing, this moment, for Jesus to make this claim was heresy. It's blasphemous. It's why he begins to get the ire of the the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the people around him. They don't like this because they don't believe it. They can't see the 3D image that's right in front of their eyes. They want to see the laws and the customs and the religion that they have established. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm here. You know what, Isaiah, the prophets, every one of them that have been talking to you, the promise that was to come, this new thing that God is doing, it's me. And you know what's amazing? Jesus could have just kind of dropped the mic and walked off the stage, right? But he didn't. Because then he begins to live out these words every day. And because this is the big picture, and we really don't have a lot of time to just dig into a lot of specifics, which is really sad, but we talk about Jesus a lot. Here's what I want to know. This is your time to talk to me. When you think about Jesus, what do you know about who Jesus was and what he did? What comes to your mind when we think of Jesus? Not all at once. Oh, miracles. Okay. Give me a specific miracle. Healing. Tons of healing. Blind? Yep. Is that what you said? Uh, wine. Oh, wine. Water to wine. Yes. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Friend to the little guy. Not Zacchaeus, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also Zacchaeus. What else? What do we know about Jesus? Absolutely. Everything he did was motivated by love. Yeah. Humility. And there's so many stories we could see of humility. Washing the disciples' feet. What else? Mm, I love that about him. I love to challenge the status quo. So I'm just being more Christ-like when I do that. Thank you, Liz. In a loving, humble way, yes. <laughs> he was pursued by Satan. Satan was always trying to trick him up. But how did, he, how did he overcome those things? Prayed a lot. Prayed a lot. Oh, man, all the time we see Jesus got away by himself to a solitary place to pray. Man, listen to the Father. And that's so critical because even Jesus, as God, and we don't want to forget that, and we talk about Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we can forget that Jesus was fully God, and yet he emptied himself of the glory that he had in the heavens And he comes to earth, he takes on human flesh, and he really puts himself under the will of the Father because he says, I won't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. Talk about the humility. What else? The cross. That's a big one. Man, and we, you know, anybody seen The Passion of the Christ? That's a hard movie to watch, but I think it's it's probably the closest representation of what crucifixion was like the horrific nature of that type of death and just the pain, physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. You just, I don't think we can even begin to fathom what that was like. Anything else? We could go on and on, couldn't we? In fact, I love, if you read the end of John's gospel, he talks about how we could fill up volumes, volumes that the world could not contain about what Jesus had done. 
There's so much more we could say. But here's what we can't do with Jesus, is we can't convince ourselves he was nothing more than a good preacher or a good teacher or a new prophet. He was so much more than that. He was God in the flesh. And over and over, Jesus confirmed this about himself. He confirmed that he was actually God. Do you know that? That like that was part of his understanding of who he was. So for example, he's talking with a Jewish crowd one day about Abraham. And they were questioning his teaching. And Jesus said to them, he said, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, blasphemous statement to make because if you go back to Moses and when Moses asked what God's name is, God says, I am. And Jesus is saying, yep, that's me. Again, blasphemy. And if you think it was a mild statement, look at the people's response to it. It says, at this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus knew what he'd said. These people were enraged by his claim of divinity. Jesus also went around healing people, but not only that, he'd also forgive sin. He'd forgive sin. One day a paralyzed man was brought to him. And Mark's gospel tells us this. It says, when Jesus saw the faith of his friends, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew this. You know how he could forgive sins? Because he was God. That's how he could make it happen. I feel like in this message, I knew going into this, I was going to come out of this going, man, there's so much more that could be said. Because <laughs> it's Jesus, God in the flesh, living among his people. Short life of only 33 years. And then in all he said and done brought about the fury of the people. They arrest him, they try him and convict him as a heretic and crucified him on a criminal's cross. But in that moment... What God had predicted in Genesis chapter 3 was coming to pass. We talked about that like week two. Look at this reminder of this verse. God says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He's talking to Satan right here, the serpent. And he says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is that moment. On the cross, this is where the serpent gets Jesus but we know this was not a mistake. It wasn't an accident. Jesus did this on purpose. It's almost like mutual destruction. And in this moment, it looks like evil wins. It looks like the bad guys have, have won the day. But we get the rest of the story, don't we? On the first day of the week, Jesus rises. And all this was so God that could accomplish his ultimate plan and purpose. What I love about Jesus is Jesus is the true and better everything that we have talked about up to this point. He's the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Moses. He's the true and better Abraham. He's the true and better temple. He's the true and better everything that the Old Testament has been pointing to. And he's the new and better covenant, the promise that God is now making to us again. And that should excite us. And the story of Jesus isn't the story of what you must do to be saved. I hope you know that. It's the story of what Jesus has already done in order to save you. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. The end of John's gospel, he also writes this. He says, but these are written, these words, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
Here's the new thing the prophets were talking about. God in human form to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And we see in him that his love for us is greater than any power in this world, greater than any evil, greater than even death itself. And here he is, the promised one, Emmanuel, God with us. You know, this is the moment that the Old Testament was pointing to. The God of creation walking along his, aside his creation once again. And the reason this series, I think, is so important is that we have to stop seeing the Bible as God's little instruction book or rule book or even a collection of disconnected story. Because the Bible is the grand narrative of God, the big picture of a God who made you to know and be known by him and to live in relationship with him. And even when we reject him, even when we've turned our back on him, he still comes into the world, takes, takes on the cross, takes on our sin, takes our punishment, and gets the victory, the victory over sin and death, over evil, and over the powers of the world. And he rises so that you and I can walk in that life, in new, refreshed life. We find forgiveness and abundant life and reconciliation and purpose for living. And the thing I just end today with is, what will you do with Jesus? That's the question, isn't it? That's the question that everything in the Old Testament is bringing us to, is what will you do with Jesus? Can't just be a nice story, because everything in history has been pointing to this moment today. Jesus coming to earth, dying for us, rising again, so that we might live with our creator once again. Now, I don't know about you, but that can get me kind of excited. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead.